If you would please stand and be blessed by the hearing of the word of God. We are told to pay careful attention to the public reading of scripture. And that means we better pay attention to the public reading of scripture. Hear the word of the Lord, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The apostle Peter writing to those scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Again, it has been a couple of weeks since I've been in the pulpit, and that sometimes scares the congregation because they don't know that I'm about to unleash two weeks' worth of everything that I've been filled up with. But I know our congregation has been blessed over the past couple of weeks with some fine teaching from God's Word, and I thank Brother Joe and Brother Chris for filling in the pulpit. Thank you for serving so faithfully God's people. As you may recall, and as is obvious, we're near the end of our study in 2 Peter. And our text here, Peter is wrapping things up. And as he wraps up these, uh, this letter, he does so by means of a series of exhortations, a series of commands. They're called imperatives in the Greek. And if you just think about the word imperative, it means what? That this is important. These are the things that we ought to do. These are the must-dos. Sometimes I like to use the phrase, the, the, the so what's. I, I believe all these things as written in God's word, but so what? How does that now impact my behavior, be, impact my worship? And so there's this focus now on what Peter is calling believers to do, to focus on, to obey as he concludes this letter. Let me remind you that this letter has a general theme, and I hope that you know it by now. And ultimately, it's simply this. It's a call to know Christ and to know him better. Whatever you think you know about Christ, praise the Lord, but know him better. And we close with the phrase that will come up with in a week or so here of what? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that it is through the true knowledge of Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 3, that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. You don't ever need to doubt that, hey, do I really have everything necessary to live for Jesus? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 3, you do. Believers are then called to diligently supply to that knowledge of Christ as you learn about Christ and you grow in your faith in chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, that there are those qualities that we've looked at quite often, those moral qualities of Christ, 
and that if you see those things being worked out in your life, Peter says this, you are neither uh, useless nor unfruitful for God. And what a blessing to know that my life can mean something to the glory of God. But how can I know? When I'm supplying to my faith those moral excellencies that we saw back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In chapter 2, believers were called to know the reality and the characteristics of false teachers. From the very beginning of the church, it hardly got off the uh, 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 out off the. Uh, starting line when all of a sudden there were false teachers who were seeking to undermine and twist and distort the truth of God's word. And chapter 2 dealt with all of that. And then now finally in chapter 3, believers are to know the true promises of Christ. Did you know Christ has made promises for us? Have you thought about that? Did you wake up this morning and think, wow, I want to recount, I want to rehearse the promises of Christ, but he does so. He says, I want you to think of the promises of Christ and put them up and against what you hear the false teachers saying. The false teachers are robbing you of your hope and are undermining the promises of Christ. But if you will have the knowledge of Christ and you grow in it, then you will rest upon the promises of Christ. But I think what needs to capture our attention here in chapter 3 is something that impacts our understanding of these final four exhortations of Peter. And in a word, chapter 3 is about this. If you're taking notes, here's the big idea. Promises. Just promises. And more specifically, the promises of Christ. And even more specifically than that, you ready? The promise Jesus made that he is coming again. However distraught you may be as you consider world politics or national politics or all the things that we see in our culture, we must never forget that Christ has promised he will come again. We see this first mentioned in verse 4 of chapter 3, but it was given as a question, really an undermining question, by the false teachers. When they asked this question, saying there in verse 4, where is the promise, there's our word, of what? His coming. Where is the promise of his coming? At the heart of that question is a denial of, of the words of Christ. It is as if we're going all the way back to the garden, only we're saying, did Christ really say he's coming again? Well, it is Jesus who said this multiple times in John chapter 14, beginning in, chapter, in verse 1. What a blessing to our souls, is it not? Do not let your hearts be troubled. I could do a whole sermon on that. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise. What? I will come again. And I will receive you to myself. 
that where I am, there you may be also. I don't know what troubles your heart this morning, but when your heart is troubled, you need to reflect on this promise that if you are in Christ, he's coming for you. And that's a good thing, right? You sometimes he's coming for you could be a bad thing. We'll look at that later too. Clearly, Jesus, the Son of God, said in no uncertain terms here and in many other places that he would come again. And it is certainly what even the angels of God understood. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, some angels were there when the men uh, were standing watching Jesus on the Mount of Olives ascend into heaven. I mean, what a sight that would have been. I remember standing on the Mount of Olives the first time ever and just thinking, wow, this would be amazing to see Christ ascending into heaven in this moment. And, of course, the men kept standing there. The sense that I get is Jesus had been long gone, and they're still there, and their mouths are open, this gawking, as it were. And so the angels had to say something, else the men probably would have stayed there till they starved. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, what's it say? will come uh, come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Let me remind you that when we speak of the coming of Christ, whether it's here or what Jesus spoke of, we're not speaking of just one day. And we're not just speaking of one event, but rather as Jesus prepares to bring all things into the consummation of of his father, as he brings all things to their end, it includes a series of events that will include the, the, the snatching up of the church, the punishment of the wicked nations during the tribulation, the return of Christ to to this earth to usher in his millennial kingdom, the final rebellion of Satan along with his Uh, uh, along with his being cast forever into the lake of fire, and even then the final judgment of the wicked dead at the great white throne where Christ then will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's all part of what takes place when Jesus comes again. All of this is contained, if you look in, in our text, just a few verses up, in verse 10, where Peter refers to this as the day of the Lord. That's this time period in which all of these events Take place, And yet in verse 7, that Peter's focused on this. He's focused on the judgment of the wicked and the destruction of this present world and heavens to make way for the new heavens and the new earth. And when I say all of this, this, beloved, is the promise of Christ. He is going to come and do all of these things. It is a promise that the false teachers mock and scorn. It is a promise that has been scorned even today by evolutionary-minded men that ridicule the thought of Jesus coming again as being simple-minded and foolish because, well, science has surely proven how all things have come to us by naturalistic means, and so everything has always been, everything will always be. There is no special act of God in the past. There's no judgment of God. There's no judgment coming, and yet... Peter had reminded them, well, God did intervene when he said, let there be light. And God did judge the world when he brought down this world with a flood. And every bit as true as that, he's coming again. And he will judge the world not with water because he promised us he wouldn't do it that way. It's a much softer, kinder kinder way the next time when it comes with fire. Right?
Anything that can be said to undermine God as creator and God as judge, that's what wicked people do. So chapter 3 is about the promises of Christ and specifically the promise of his coming. And it would be helpful at this point to define what is a promise of Christ. Well, a promise of Christ is the same thing as saying a promise of God because, well, Christ is God in the flesh. And so a promise, a divine promise, is anything God pledges will or will not be done, anything that will or will not be given, or anything that will or will not come to pass. We would say it this way. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If God says it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. The promises of God are not flippant. They're not casual things. They're they're not mutable statements. They don't change. We often make promises that we may well desire to fulfill, but simply cannot. How many of you have ever given one of those kinds of promises, right? I really want to do this, but you can't follow through. As an aside, I always find certain movies or shows irksome when the hero of the particular episode says something like, Don't worry, I promise you we're going to catch the killer. And we'll do it in the next 45 minutes. We'll do it real. I mean, it's like, how do you make that promise? Don't worry, we'll make it to the end of the journey, I promise. Well, while they often are right because the script writers make it that way, we know real life presents us with so many obstacles that it's difficult to Sometimes let your yes be yes and your no be no. We make promises that we can't always follow through on. But the promises of the Lord are sure. They are certain. They're unequivocal commitments that will be and must be fulfilled. The promises of the Lord are linked to the very faithfulness of God himself. And since God is faithful and God is trustworthy, any promise he makes must come to pass. Otherwise, God would be unfaithful and untrustworthy. The recipients of the promises of the Lord then are to be fully assured that what God has said will come to pass. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, Christ has promised to come again. Not that he may come again, not may be, but he will come. And Christ, who is not merely a man bound by our human limitations, is also fully, truly God who cannot lie. And so when he says he's coming, we need to get it through our heads. He is coming. And I know I'm speaking to a group of people who are saying, well, yeah, we already believe this. Well, we believe it in theory. But does it work itself out in your practice? And that's what Peter is about to get after here. How, now, how does all of this relate then to these closing verses of chapter uh, of 2 Peter 3? Well, as we've noted, there are four commands given in these final four verses. If you look in your Bibles, the verses 14 through 18, I want you to note these. Well, I guess I have them up here for you as well. Four commands. The first command is be diligent. Be diligent, verse 14, to be found by him, Christ, in peace, spotless and blameless. Second command, regard. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Third command, 
Be on your guard against the error of unprincipled men. And then finally, grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you want to know that you're being affected by the promise of Christ to come again? Then work on these four commands. These are Peter's expectations upon those who are the beloved, those who possess the same faith that Peter and John and Paul possessed. These are Peter's exhortations of how believers are to live their lives until Christ returns. And so I say to you, there is a link between what we say we believe, Christ is returning, he's coming again, and how we behave. And if you are not behaving in these manners, and of course we could look at so many other scriptures, it tells you something about your faith. Our creed must affect our conduct. And so note with me again in verse 14, where we read, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things. Again, here's the link. Because you look for the return of Christ, because you're looking at there's a judgment coming upon the wicked, because you know Christ is going to return. That's the, these things of the day of the Lord. These are now going to affect how we behave. These things are to bring confidence. And as we look back up in verse 13 where it says it's according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's that promise again. Now, in light of the promises concerning the coming of Christ, our lives are to be lived out in this certain way. And then there are these exhortations in which we find four truths linked to the promise of Christ's return. We see the patience of his promise in verse 14, or excuse me, the purity of his promise in verse 14, the patience of his promise in verses 15 and 16, the protection of his promise in verse 17, and the productiveness of his promise in verse 18. So let us quickly be, this is review now, right? It's been two weeks, and so I'm going to review. We've already looked at this first one, but here's our first point, the purity of uh, his promise. And therefore, look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him uh, in peace, spotless and blameless. So what we are looking at it is, is that if we're focused and standing on the promise of Christ to come again, it is the result in a life that is diligent. Remember that word diligent. We've seen it many times in this letter, and it means to apply maximum effort. We're going to give it everything we got. Have you ever been there? I'm just going to give everything I have to this particular project. I'm going to give it all that I got to be found in Christ in peace, spotless, and blameless. Of course, without Christ, there is no peace. Without Christ, not one of us would ever be spotless or blameless. The command here is much like that which we found back in chapter 1, verse 10, where Peter wrote, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, there it is, to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, that moral character of Christ, these uh, things you will never stumble. What is this ultimately? We start off with just a, a general question. Do you know you're standing with Christ? Do you know yourself to be right with Christ? Have you experienced the peace of God that comes through faith because you've trusted in Christ? That you know you're to be that you're a sinner and Christ is the Savior. To know there is no peace until you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead. That the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 would be true, that it is by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Why would you want to be in Christ Jesus? What on earth does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? I, I don't, never heard anybody said, hey, I want to be in Pastor Ed. What does that mean? You don't want to be. But I'm saying, but it's by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. Why would I want to be in Christ Jesus? Because Christ became to us wisdom from God, meaning knowing. So I got these little commentaries, knowing how to live for him. That's what wisdom is. He is righteousness, that he enables us to do what is right when we're in Christ. And sanctification, there is that idea of being spotless and blameless in our behavior and he became for us redemption, that he saves us from our sins. To be found in Christ in peace, spotless and blameless, is to be found in Christ. It is to be a child of God. It means to be born again. And this, then, is the purity of the promise. Am I like Christ? Am I imitating Christ? When people see me, do they see Christ? Or do they still see the ugly, sinful, selfish me? You see, we recognize that there's a purity that belongs to us positionally. Praise God. Because when we come to Christ, we're not perfect. We still sin. We still got ugliness that we fight. But when God looks at us covered in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, positionally he sees us as what? Peaceful, spotless. And blameless, because that's how he sees Christ. That's positionally. But I'm saying what Peter now is calling us to do is diligently pursue a life that reflects that standing. If I am positionally spotless and blameless, then I need to strive to be experientially spotless and blameless. I'm not going to lie to my parents, I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. I'm not going to be mean and kick the dog or whatever it is that you have a struggle with. You're working diligently to have a life that reflects your imitation of Christ. And that's what we've already considered. So let's move on because I could preach that for a while. We're going to look at uh, our second exhortation, that which we've called the patience of his promise. And this is found in verses 15 and 16. This is where we'll camp out today. The command, where's that command? It says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is the second of these four commands and uh, this exhortation, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And I'd like us to note three things from this particular statement. And the first is the action that's required. It's just going to the command. What is the main action? What's the main verb? What's the call? The verb is regard. That doesn't seem like a very strong word, right? Would you, you know, in regards to this, please regard me, whatever it is. But the word regard actually means to consider carefully or to lead. And the way that Peter uses it here, it speaks of allowing. I, can you go ahead and I think it should be up there on the next. There you go. This is the action that's required. All right. And the way that Peter's using this term regard, it speaks of, it's written in such a way as to say, allow yourself, allow the, the subject, which is the patience of the Lord, to guide and lead your thinking. 
In other words, you are to be thinking in terms of the patience of the Lord being salvation. Whatever you're struggling with, come back to how patient God is with you. When the children are pushing all of your proverbial buttons, you need to consider carefully the patience of the Lord. When you get irritated at your spouse or when something is not going the way that you expect it to go, you are to regard and to consider, to account this patience of the Lord and let that affect your behavior. Because let me ask you this question. I'm getting ahead of myself. Who has been more patient with you than the Lord? Who is more patient than the Lord? There is something about the patience of the Lord that we are to consider in our pursuit of personal holiness, back in verse 14, being found in Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. And I submit to you that what Peter is after is that a correct view of the coming again of Christ, that he is coming, that he will judge the wicked, that he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, is to lead and guide us in our understanding to answer this question. Why has it been 2,000 years since this promise has been made? Why are we still waiting? I can't tell you how many times I've heard my wife, I've heard some of you say it too, you know, you're like, things are getting kind of squirrely and chaotic, and you're like, what do you say? Lord Jesus, just come. Be fine if you come today. And it says, get all of this over with. And we're like, why is he? And we're talking about our little pathetic puny lives of, you know, 25, 50, 75 years, whatever it is, compared to 2,000. How do we answer this question? Why are we still waiting on the Lord's return? Well, back in verses 3 and 4, the false teachers, those who do not believe or trust in what Christ has declared, they had grown impatient. And I kind of, uh, I chuckle at this because they wrongly interpret the delay of the Lord. They're like, been a long time, guys, and Jesus isn't back. And I chuckle at it because how long had it been when they're saying this? 20, 30 years? And here we are 2,000 years later. Seems like they, their argument would be better today than it was when it was made, right? But the false teachers were teaching that expecting the return of Christ to set things right was a delusion. It's just not going to happen. And consider the ramifications of, if, of such a teaching. Because if Christ is not returning, what is the point of living a life of peace, spotless and blameless? If Christ is not returning, then why not seek to live your best life now? For who knows what's coming in the next life. If Christ is not returning, then why believe and hold to anything that Jesus ever taught? Because he's obviously a liar. Peter's exhortation is pointed. He's telling his readers, he's telling us, I need you to consider carefully I need you to account for this. I need you to be led by a different interpretation with regard to the delay of the Lord. There's a, a, a theological term we call this. We call it the parousia. Okay, if you want to impress all of your friends at work tomorrow, we talked about the parousia in the sermon today. Okay, Why is the Lord delaying? And what is that interpretation? We are to consider the, the patience, this delay of the Lord, 
as salvation. It's exactly what he says. That you regard the patience of our Lord as what? Salvation. And that leads us to our second point. What is the patience of the Lord? The patience of the Lord. Believers are to regard, consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. But what is the patience of the Lord? What do we mean by this? And the word patience speaks of, you ready, long enduring. Uh, we speak of long suffering, forbearing. Those are all the big old words, right? Let me put it in some modern uh, vernacular. Uh, and this isn't even a word. I made this up. The long fusedness of the Lord. The Lord has a long fuse. Okay? That's kind of the idea. There's a long fuse. Christ has a long fuse. Christ is not quick-tempered. He's not easily provoked. He does not fly off the handle. Let me remind you that Peter has already addressed with his readers this concept of the Lord's patience. And for some reason, he wants to get this through to his readers' heads because he brings it up again, we were introduced to the majestic display of the Lord's patience back up in verses 8 through 10. Look at those for me. Let's read those verses again, verses 8 and 10 through 10. Peter writes, But uh, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is not saying that a day equals a thousand years. This is saying that in our mind what God could do in one day, some reason he might take a thousand years, and things that we think that God may take a thousand years to do, well, if he wants to, he'll do it in one day. That's what he's saying here. Then verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his what? What's our text about? Promises. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is, here's our word, patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But even with the patience of the Lord, there's a limit. The day of the Lord will come. Okay, here's the patience of his promise. Remember that Peter's addressing the mocking of the world concerning the second coming of Christ. The skeptics are arguing that since the Lord has not yet come, this was proof enough that there is no second coming. But not only is there no second coming, there's no real Jesus, there's no real Christ. And Peter rebuffs this thought and states that the fact that Christ has not come is not a display of failure, but rather it is a display of the majestic patience of, of the Lord. To answer the question as to why the Lord has not yet come again, the answer is simple. The answer is wonderful. The answer should be that which causes your heart to rejoice, and it is this. As of yet... Not all of the people whom the Lord has appointed to eternal life have been saved. And so he's waiting patiently for all who will be saved to be saved. There are more to believe. And though this world is wicked, and while it deserves the full wrath of God even now, as Romans 1.25 states it, the sin of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature uh, that is fulfilling all sorts of creaturely and debased desires contrary to the wor word of God rather than the creator who is forever blessed. That's treason on the highest order and you should be shot on the spot. And yet the Lord is long-suffering and the Lord has promised to be so until all his elect 
all his chosen to be redeemed from their sinfulness and willful rebellion, all whom he has determined to be holy and spotless and blameless by faith in Christ, have been brought to him into that saving relationship with Christ through the faithful proclamation of the gospel by the saints. Can I tell you that this is all very evangelistic? If the only thing that's keeping, in a sense, the return of Christ is the full number of those for whom Christ died, then shouldn't we be busy proclaiming the gospel? When we say, man, things are pretty rough right now, Lord, would you just come today and end all of this? The Lord says, in effect, get out there and tell others about the gospel because that's what we're being called to do. The key statement in this phrase here is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you to perish. That's the key statement. He's patient. Who are these you in verse 8? Look, look there in verse 8. The you are the beloved. If you look up at chapter 3, verse 1, we note that it is the beloved who are receiving this letter. This now beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We go back to the very opening verses of 2 Peter, the very first verse, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, the patience... And the long-suffering of the Lord is towards those whom he has chosen to be saved out of this w- wicked world. The patience of the promise of his patience is that Christ will not come again until he brings uh, all those for whom he has died into the fold. Now, wouldn't it be great? I've always thought this. When I was a teenager and I'd first come to Christ and I heard this kind of teaching, it's like, What a blessing it would be to be so busy sharing the gospel. Maybe I share it, pretend Ken's not a believer, and I'm sharing with Ken. Ken, here's here's the gospel. Will you receive Jesus? And Ken says yes, and then it's over. He's the last one. Wouldn't it be a blessing if you were part of that? there's, There's this encouragement to be busy about proclaiming the gospel. And if this be so, is it any wonder that Peter calls believers in verse 12 of this text to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, meaning we are to communicate that we are to be busy in this period of time called the patience of the Lord to preach and to teach and to communicate, to share and discuss and to persuade people with the gospel, the saving message that that while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that whilst the, the wages of sin is death, that eternal separation from God, from the blissful presence of God, there is yet hope. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. But today is the day of salvation that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That whoever confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Salvation is today. This is what it means to regard the patience of the Lord, what does Peter say? As salvation. Our God is a saving God. Our God is a missionary God. It is the Lord's giving now time to unbelievers so that they will be saved. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, I beg you, 
on behalf of God be reconciled. Because today is the only day you may have to be reconciled, to be made right with God. And you are testing the patience of God by refusing to receive his son. But it's not just a time for unbelievers to be saved. It's also a time for believers to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. What on earth does that mean? Can I tell you one one thing it means for sure? It means that you would be found by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. And it means that you're busy living for Christ and proclaiming Christ. Notice something else that Peter says here. He calls this the patience. He doesn't say the patience of the Lord. What does he say? The patience of our Lord. Easy to miss, isn't it? Easy to miss. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, it means that this is to be the confession of the saints. We confess, do we not, our Lord is loving. God is love. We love that one. We confess that our Lord is holy, 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 holy. We confess that our Lord is compassionate. And we do well to make those confessions. But according to Peter, we must also confess that our Lord is patient. We confess that he's holy. We confess that he's loving. But I confess to you, he's patient And you need to understand the patience of the Lord because he's also said there's a limit to it. He will always be holy. He will always be loving. He will not always be patient with this wicked world. He has said so. Oh, what a blessed truth to consider. The patience of our Lord as salvation, he says. Oh, the depth of his patience towards humanity. How I've come to realize that our Lord is patient and I'm not. I'm constantly learning patience and usually failing. Yet Christ is patience. And all the best that I can do is develop patience. Such patience of the Lord is astonishing particularly as we consider the many ways in which even we as the saints provoke the patience of God. Did you know you provoke the patience of God? I'm telling you, you do. So if you think you're perfect, you're not. We provoke him with our faithlessness. We provoke him with our waywardness. We provoke him with our stubbornness. We provoke him with our neglectfulness. And we just go on and on with that as if it's okay. God's patient. Peter says, regard the patience of our Lord as what? A salvation. As deliverance from anything that's contrary to him. Now, the patience of the Lord is nothing unique to the writings of Peter. It's not like Peter just came up with this in a vacuum and said, oh, okay, I think this is something that we've never thought about before. Let's talk about the patience of the Lord. We see the patience of the Lord in his interactions with Adam and Eve in the garden, do we not? Even as they fell into sin, separating themselves from God and thus deserving in that moment, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. 
Oh, and we say, well, that just means spiritual death. No, it didn't. It meant spiritual death. It meant physical death. Just God in his patience allowed that to be a much slower process than an instantaneous judgment. Well, why would that be important? That would be important. Why would he delay the death process so as to provide through the woman the promised seed that would crush the serpent's head and bring an end to the power of death through that seed who is Jesus Christ our Lord. We see the patience of the Lord as he deals with uh, such godly figures as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you ever read about their lives? Liars and, and uh, deceits, de- deceitful men. Uh, yeah, they failed the Lord. We see the patience of the Lord with Israel as they grumbled their way all the way through the wilderness after being so wondrously delivered from their bondage in Egypt. We see the patience of the Lord in the Gospels of Jesus, the very Son of God who was rejected and ridiculed and crucified, and he did it without retaliation. We see the patience of the Lord as he establishes the church in the book of Acts. We see the patience of the Lord throughout church history as false teacher after false teacher have waged war against the truth of God's word. And yet God's truth abideth still. When you fear your faith will fail, regard the patience of the Lord as your deliverance, his salvation. If you have believed, if you have seen him change your heart, then know that he will hold you fast. He will save you. He has promised to come again, and part of that promise is that he's coming for you. And that brings us to this third consideration from these words, that which we call the wisdom of Paul. You know, with our time remaining, we consider this the end of verse 15 and, and all of verse 16. We'll do this rather quickly. And at first glance, I mean, don't this appears to be like this is some curveball that Peter has thrown at us. Why are you bringing in Paul and why are you mentioning uh, his hard sayings and, and all of this? It's like this, this curveball. And if we keep the analogy, hopefully we can knock the curveball out of the park because what we find here is fascinating. You see, by introducing Paul, Peter's informing us that what he's been saying about the Lord and his promises, well, well, they are nothing new. Paul taught the very same things. In the end of verse 15, we read, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of what? These things. We've already defined these things the promises of Christ, and very specifically what promise? That he's coming again. He's coming again. If we're not careful, we might miss some of these wonderful truths. Let me point out three of them. First, these words are words of reconciliation. There is an incident that's recorded by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and it's a, a, a situation where Paul says, and I quote, opposed Peter to his face. He confronted Peter for his hypocrisy. What was Peter's hypocrisy? Peter had been, for a time, eating with Gentile Christians. These new believers, they're Gentiles. Of course, Jews didn't eat with Gentiles, but now we're free in Christ. I'm going to eat with these these new uh, Gentile believers. And then some Jewish believers came along, and Peter's like, ooh, this might not look good. 
So then he separated himself from the Gentile believers, and he only ate with the Jewish believers. He removed himself. Now, this was a dangerous tactic, really promoted by the enemy, to set at odds within the church Jews against Gentiles. And worse yet, by Peter separating himself from Gentile believers, he put both himself and Paul, who were at the time the most prominent Christian leaders around, they are now what? They're now at odds with one another. And Paul went to Peter's face and said, Peter, you are in sin. You're wrong. In Galatians 2.11, Peter stated, or Paul stated that Peter stood condemned. He spoke of a church leader as condemned. I don't think I'd want to be on the receiving end of Paul's reproof. In today's church, such a statement, particularly if it were made on Twitter or X or whatever it's called today, would start a firestorm of controversy, right? There would be people on both sides, the, the pro-Pauls and the pro-Peters, the anti-Peters and the anti-Pauls, and they'd be at war with one another. Galatians was written about 49 A.D., Peter's now writing almost 20 years later, Paul's dead. But what do we find here? We find that Peter and Paul had obviously been reconciled. Peter has no animosity whatsoever for the Apostle Paul. We find Peter commending the letters of Paul without so much as a hint that there was an ever, ever a problem. And we find this in the Proverbs, by the way. Proverbs 12, 11 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Peter wasn't stupid. He took the reproof of Paul. Proverbs 15.32, he, he who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Peter had acquired understanding. He had been lovingly reproved by Paul, and he corrected the error of his way, and he did not hold it against Paul whatsoever. But not only are these words of reconciliation, then they're also words of commendation. Again, we, we, we re reference this. There's this commendation, this recommendation of uh, Peter's readers. He's basically saying the letters of Paul are worth your time. And they're worth your time because if you really look at it, as you note, he equates them to what? Scripture, that they are Scripture. We'll see this in just a moment. By God's providence, we have 13 letters written by Paul. Peter not only acknowledges these letters, that they exist, but we also find Peter affirming their divine origin because note what he says about them. We read that these letters were according to the wisdom given to him. I love that. Peter tells us that Paul wrote not this because of his own intellectual prowess. It's not because he was so clever and so smart. He wrote with a wisdom that was given to him. But that, get, that begs the question, right? Who would give Paul wisdom? Who was it that gave Paul wisdom? Well, we need to remember what we've already learned from Peter concerning the, the, the origin of all Scripture. If you look back in chapter 1 for just a moment, chapter 1 and verse 21 
Peter answers this question for us. And he says there that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit did what? They spoke from God. In other words, as Paul wrote these letters, they were not the product of his own wisdom, but rather came from the wisdom that was given to him by God. And notice then at the end of verse 16 that he actually equates, Peter equates Paul's letters with all of Scripture. One of the clearest references we have that all 13 letters of the Apostle Paul are Scripture. Well, then that brings us to this final thought that these words are words of explanation. Peter tells us that Scripture, including the various things in the letters of Paul, he tells us something about them. Oh, that Paul, man, he wrote a lot. And he also wrote some things that are difficult to understand. How many of you agree? All right. Verse, 15, verse 16, as also in his letter, speaking of, them, of these things in which some things are hard to understand. Isn't that so? How many of you have read the Bible and you just kind of scratch your head and think, what did I just read? Or, you, or you, you wrestle with something. I mean, there are things in the Bible that are simply hard to understand. And if you've ever put your, uh, yourself in that situation where you just you study and study and study still more, and then you just kind of come to the end of the study and like, I'm not sure I know how this works. Peter tells us that this is true of the letters of Paul. Paul probes some of the deepest thoughts and questions that you can imagine. I mean, one of the ones that still gets people all riled up today is how is God absolutely sovereign over all things and yet rightfully able to hold uh, people responsible for their actions, right? We, we try to deal with that all the time. Is God the author of sin? May it never be. Uh, does man have completely free will? You know, how does all of those things work? Well, there are in Scripture and in the letters of Paul deep and profound truths that are not always easy to comprehend. And some people are bothered by that, but I'm going to say I'm so glad that that's the way it is. I'm glad there's things I can't get my head wrapped around. Why? Because that means it's of divine origin. My God is infinite and I'm finite. And if I could understand everything of God, that would mean, well, I must be God. And you all don't want that. Contrary to the opinion of skeptics, I would actually be more concerned if I were able to grasp all the things of Scripture, all the things that Paul wrote. It would mean that the product that I'm looking at is just the product of men. There will always be somebody smarter, more clever that can come along and figure all of those things out. When we look at a passage of Scripture, we may be confronted with something difficult that causes us to think hard, but that difficulty should never be used to cause us to shrink away from what our hearts need if we're going to grow in godliness. Honestly, I say we're all generally inclined to laziness. The harder the passage, the less likely we are to really dig into it. To read and reread and study and study more, well, that's hard work. And so I re remind you that our hearts need to work out these truths. We are called to eat the meat of God's word and not just continue on forever drinking only of its milk. To wrestle through hard teachings of scripture is a needed exercise for the well-being of your soul. Yet I'd have you notice what I think is the gem of this truth here. And that's what Peter says in verse 16. And I almost missed it. Of Paul's letter, he writes, look, verse 16, in which are, what does it say? 
some things hard to understand. I think people have read this verse over and over and think, well, everything of Paul's hard, so I don't have to really worry about it. And Peter didn't say everything of, of, of Paul was hard. He said just some things. Some. It implies then that most the majority of the things written by Paul, the majority of the things in Scripture are actually easy to understand. And this is what makes the Word of God so marvelous. There are portions of Scripture that will stump the greatest minds that ever have been and ever will be. And yet the majority of the Bible is simple enough for the smallest of our children to understand. Amen? We call this the perspicuity. Of scripture, if you wanted to. So you have perusia, and make a list of vocabulary. Perusia, perspicuity, which means simply the understandability of scripture. You can read it and understand it. Beloved, do not then allow the small portions of difficult passages to be used as an excuse to avoid even the simple ones. There's a great theologian, his name was Mark Twain actually a skeptic and a critic of the church, but uh, he did speak rightly when he said this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Sound like Mark Twain? It ain't the parts, those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. He knew that they said something just very straightforward and simple. But for our purposes here, we find that like Peter, Paul also spoke on the patience of the Lord. And I just want to give you one quick example. In Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, notice how much this reads like what we've just read in Second Peter. Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, as a display of his patience and forbearance, the Lord has presently put off the judgment, it says here, of the ungodly. The world looks at the patience of the Lord, and, uh, and, and, uh, and rather than see that as kindness and as a, a call to repentance and a call to be saved, they look at the patience of the Lord as saying, well, he must not be around, and it simply emboldens them in their sinful rebellion and in their continued mocking of God. Rather, we are to regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Unbelievers use it as a rationale to continue in their rebellion against God. And Paul says this does nothing but store up greater judgment for them. That which P Peter had said back in chapter 3, verse 7, is the Lord's reserving this present heavens and earth for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It's the same, same teaching. So returning to our text, let me ask you, a question as we wrap it up. How difficult is it to understand Peter's point in verse 15? We read, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Can you understand that? Will you take advantage of the patience of the Lord? If you're an unbeliever, it means call upon the name of the Lord today in a time in which he may be found. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today is the day of the patience of the Lord. Today is the day in which the Lord may be found. 
but this will not be so forever. And so, unbeliever, the Lord's patience with this world of wickedness will end, and if it finds you in a state of unrepentance and unbelief, still in your sins, it means you have not come to understand this very simple truth. That God has been patient with you. He's given you all of this time, not so that he can condemn you, but that he can convert you. You have been given this call, this moment, this hour to call upon Jesus to say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need Christ as my Savior. Yes, my heart is wicked and, and, and beyond all comprehension of deceit, but Jesus can change that. We call you to regard this patience, this delay of the Lord's return as your opportunity to be saved. For you who are believers, here's your application. Why the patience of the Lord? I've already told you this. We are to regard the patience of the Lord as what? Salvation. So what are you to be doing with that? We need to be more efficient, more diligent to proclaim the gospel. We need to be more evangelistic, more missionary-minded because we are to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. As we come to the end of verse 16, take note that there are, t- that there are those who balk at the patience of the Lord as taught by Peter and Paul and Jesus and the rest of scriptures. These are teachers, which it says in verse 16, which the untaught and unstable distort. They do as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, rather than take heed to the very simple call of Scripture to turn from sin and to see the patience of the Lord as a call to repentance, there are those who focus their attention on, well, uh, here's all the contradictions, here's all the problems, here's the difficulties with the Scripture. Just cease striving and know that he is God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's as simple as that. Well, yeah, but what about? No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We can talk about all of these other things, but it certainly just comes down to this one thing. Do you know yourself to be a sinner and Christ to be the Savior? Because if you don't believe that, you will twist and distort the scriptures to make them say something that they never say. But in the end, what will it bring you? Destruction. So then let us rightly regard, let us account, faithfully consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Let us delight in the consistent teaching of scripture concerning the patience of our Lord. Not distorting, not twisting not counting as nothing the patience of our Lord because it is salvation. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the depth and wonder of the promise of Christ to come again. May that have a continual impact upon us. And Father, we come here and we recognize even as we're about to come before the table and celebrate what Christ has done for us, that there are so many times we see that our faith is faithless, that we come up short. We pray, Father God, that we would recognize you have been patient with us. You brought us to salvation, and we are confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
And so, Father, we pray that you will remind us to hold on to Christ as Christ holds on to us. And, Father, for anyone who has yet to receive Christ as Lord, we pray that today would be that day of salvation. Speak to the hearts of those who are doubting, the hearts of those who have never believed. Cause them to look to Christ and to come to Christ and to believe on him. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.